Welcome to episode 19 of Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And today we're going to be talking about burns and appearance, specifically about the psychological impact of an altered appearance as a result of a burn injury. Yes, a bit of a shift in topic from recent episodes. But at CAR, we have two main streams of research, body image and visible difference. Yeah, and we've covered a number of topics related to body image recently, from the impact of social media on body image. Episode 18. Yep, to cosmetic surgery and body image. Which I think is episode 15. I think it is. So we are long overdue an episode related to visible difference. Absolutely. And research focused on improving the psychological support for those affected by burn injuries, specifically support around adjusting to an altered appearance, is a key area of visible difference work at CAR alongside work related to other appearance altering conditions such as the cleft lip or palate which you can hear more about in episode 5 or the psychological impact of an altered appearance due to cancer treatments. The Burns team at CAR is led by our co-director Professor Diana Harcourt and includes research fellow Dr Catherine Griffiths, research associate Ella Guest and clinical psychologist and PhD researcher Dr Jen Heath. We're really lucky as Catherine, Ella and Jen have helped co-create this episode and we're going to hear from all three of them. Right, Catherine and Ella will talk us through their work on a project to identify the psychological support needs of burn patients and their family members, specifically how and why they have embedded questions on appearance. Then, Jen will tell us about the role of a clinical psychologist working with a burn service and her PhD research which aims to improve the peer support for parents who have a child affected by a burn. And again, Jen will tell us how addressing the altered appearance from the burn injury is important in this work. We know that burn injuries can be very traumatic and affect a number of things within a person's life, such as functionality and movement. But let's start with how do burn injuries affect appearance? Okay, so burn injuries are predominantly, although not exclusively, injuries that damage the skin. Right, muscles, tendons, nerves and bones can also be damaged by severe burns. Gosh, and because burn injuries damage the skin, they can result in visible, permanent and often stigmatising changes in appearance, such as scarring, hair loss or skin discoloration. And if the burn damages muscles and bones, amputation might sometimes be required, and so obviously also significantly impacts on a person's appearance. Although many people cope well, dealing with an altered appearance can have a significant impact on a person's self-worth and confidence, which in turn can, for some, result in difficulties in social situations with others, impacting on friendships, romantic relationships and school or work. Right, and given the permanency of the change in appearance as a result of a burn injury, an altered appearance from a burn can have a major and enduring impact on a person's quality of life. Yes, and this is supported by a study by Toms and colleagues in 2007, which focused on the long-term adjustment of 224 burn survivors. The authors found that both men and women can struggle with appearance concerns after a burn injury, although women were more at risk of body dissatisfaction compared to men. They also found that those who place high levels of importance on their appearance as part of their self-identity are more at risk of greater body dissatisfaction after experiencing a burn injury. The authors also found that nearly half of the burn survivors reported at least mild symptoms of depression. And what's really interesting here is that body dissatisfaction was the most salient predictor of depression. Yes, and interestingly, the presence of depression was not associated with the presence of a facial injury, with the size of the burn or the patient's age, all factors which have been considered potentially influential in previous research. 
Yeah, so this study really underscores the kind of uniquely powerful effect of body dissatisfaction on the quality of life of burn survivors, independently of the size and location of the burn, as well as highlighting the long-term nature of the body image rehabilitation process for people who have been affected by a burn. Right, and in another study by Toms again, and colleagues in 2008, this time a 12-month longitudinal study following the adjustment of individuals after a severe burn injury. Yeah, they found that the level of body image dissatisfaction one year on from hospital discharge was the single most important predictor of overall psychological adjustment at that time. The authors also found that the degree of body image distress increased during this period for women and for those with larger burn injuries. Okay, so before we hear from Katrin, Ella and Jen about the work they're doing here on car on appearance and burns, let's backtrack a little and give a quick 101 on burn injuries. Good idea, Nadia. So typically burn injuries are often the result of accidents, many of which, especially for children and the elderly, occur in the home, particularly in the kitchen. That's right, and according to the British Burns Association, 49% of burn injuries among children under 16 happen in the kitchen. For working age adults, burns are frequently work-related accidents, although they can also be self-inflicted injuries. Burn injuries are most often caused by heat, either from a flame or contact with a very hot surface. Yeah, like an iron or an oven. Or from hot liquids or steam. But they can also be caused by radiation, radioactivity, electricity, friction or corrosive chemicals such as acid. Burn injuries are fairly common. So in the UK, estimates suggest that 250,000 people will be burnt or scalded in any given year. However, burn injuries range significantly in terms of their severity and a large proportion of these cases will be mild. Right, according to a review by the Burn Injuries Database in 2014, 13,000 burn injuries require hospital attention every year in England and Wales. Yeah, so around 5% of all cases in the UK. And of this 5%, just over 1% will prove fatal. However, while mortality rates from burn injuries in England and Wales is decreasing in line with Western world trends, globally, however, the prognosis isn't always as good. And according to the World Health Organization, an estimated 265,000 deaths are caused by burn injuries every year the vast majority of which occur in low- and middle-income countries. Right, there's a clear link between the prevalence and prognosis of burn injuries with social inequality. On that, quick side note, you can hear more about burns in low-income countries in a recording of a keynote talk given by Professor Diana Harcourt, which we shared on this podcast in episode 10. That reminds me, I've been meaning to re-listen to that for ages. It was such a fascinating talk. Agreed. I might re-listen too if I can get over my cringy like monologue introductions back to the time when I had no co-host. Oh. <laughs> um, maybe I can just fast forward. Anyway, back on topic. Yeah, so given the number of hazards in the home. Yeah, so such as hot surfaces, hot drinks, electric equipment, sockets. Children are often affected by burn injuries. In the UK, some 58,000 children under 16 attend accident and emergency departments for treatment following a burn injury each year. Thankfully, most of these are not serious. However, each year, approximately 500 children, so just less than 1%, have severe burn injuries that require admission to hospital for specialist care. The severity of a burn is usually characterised by the extent of skin affected, often referred to in clinical settings as the total burn surface area, or TBSA, and the depth of burn as well as the age of the patient and the presence of coexisting disorders. Right, so I'm guessing many of us have had experience of a very minor burn when we've accidentally caught our hand on the oven or touched a pair of hair straighteners while they're still on or spilt hot coffee on ourselves. But with these minor burns, pain is often fleeting and affects just a small area of skin, often on our hands and can be treated at home by placing the affected area under a cool running tap for 20 minutes or so. And we will give a quick rundown of burn injury first aid in a moment. Yeah, 
Um, but with more serious burns, the pain is excruciating. Especially during dressing changes. And can continue for months after the accident, accompanied by like, discomfort, sensitivity and itchiness, and sometimes poor recovery of motor functioning. So like movement and coordination. That said, pain is actually a good sign, if you can call it that, as in the most severe cases of burn injuries, nerves are also burnt, so patients don't feel any pain. Um, Obviously, all of these more serious burns require specialist treatment. Acute injuries can be highly traumatic and affect individuals psychologically and socially long after the event. Right, some patients with a burn injury can experience trauma symptoms, anxiety, depression, as well as difficulties um, in work, romantic relationships and intimacy. Ultimately, whether sustained in childhood or adulthood, a burn can have a significant impact on the lives of those directly affected and those supporting them. Plus, the fact that in the West, more people are surviving serious burn injuries, thanks to significant advances in burn medical care, means an increasing number of people are living with their injuries and may need lifelong physical, psychological and social rehabilitation and support. Right, before we get to our guests, the British Burns Association highlight that good first aid immediately following a burn or a scold can make a huge difference in recovery times and the severity of scarring. So we want to just spend just a couple of minutes um, to share some first aid recommendations from our UK National Health Service. Okay, number one, stop the burning process as soon as possible. Yeah, so this could involve using a fire extinguisher, dousing the flames with water or smothering the flames with a blanket. Um, but make sure you know the cause of the fire because electric and chemical fires require different actions to like a normal fire. Two, remove any clothing or jewellery near the burnt area of skin. Yes, although don't try and remove anything that's stuck to burnt skin because this could cause more damage. Three, cool the burn with cool or lukewarm running water for 20 minutes as soon as possible after the injury. Right, and so this is contrary to some like popular old wives' tales that you should never use um, ice or ice water or any creams or like greasy substances such as butter. Cool running water is the, the best mm. option. Four, keep the injured person warm. Yeah, so you can use a blanket or layers of clothing, but avoid putting anything on the injured area. This will prevent hypothermia, um, where the person's body temperature uh, drops below 35 degrees Celsius, which is a risk if you're cooling a large burnt area, particularly in young children or elderly people. Mm, And five, cover the burn with cling film. Yeah, so you're supposed to put the cling film in a layer over the burn, uh, as opposed to like wrapping it around the limb, for example. Yeah, and finally, depending on the severity of the injury, either call emergency services or your local GP for advice. Yeah, so remember we're not uh, medical professionals, so if in doubt, call emergency services or your doctor ASAP. Okay, so time to hear from our first guest, Katrin and Ella. At CAR, Dr Katrin Griffiths and Ella Guest have been funded by the Restore Wound and Scar Research Charity and the Scar Free Foundation Children Burns Research Centre to develop the Care Burn Scales, which are a set of questionnaires to identify burn patients and family members' needs within the UK NHS Burn Service. Okay, so Katrin is our resident lover of cheesy 90s pop at CAR, and this might be a recency effect, but Ella is definitely one of our star bakers, do you think, Jade? Yeah, oh my god, that chocolate tiffin the other week. Right, exactly. So, um, but a quick note before we hear from them, the questionnaires that um, they'll be referring to are also known as patient-reported outcome measures, and these are often referred to or shortened to PROMS. So to avoid any confusion, or maybe this is just for me, um, any mention of the word PROMS in this episode is in reference to these questionnaires. So not a dark party. Oh. <laughs> 
Hi, Catherine and Ella. Thanks for joining us on our Burns and Appearance podcast episode. It's great to have you guys. So, can you start by telling me how did the Proms project begin? Yeah, sure. So, well, Carl were first approached by Restore Wound and Research Charity about this project over five years ago. And they came to us to ask if we could develop a tool to be able to identify burn patients' needs as there appeared to be a lack of burn-specific tools to measure health outcomes after a burn and even fewer uh, that included the psychological aspects of living with a burn mm-hmm. such as body image dissatisfaction uh, or difficulties in social situations. And also traditionally burn services were tending to use clinician reported measures um, in order to assess how burn patients were doing after a burn. And of course we know how important it is to be able to gain expert opinion about the treatment uh, for boons but we also know increasingly how important it is to ask patients themselves about their needs after having a boon injury which this can really help them feel in control of their treatment mm-hmm. and which can be quite empowering for patients. So this is why we decided to develop the care boon scales which are a set of boon specific patient reported outcome measures or PROMs for short which identify the health needs of children, young people and adults with a boon and also the parents that are supporting children with a boon. Okay, brilliant, thanks. Um, wait, so Ella, please can you explain what exactly patient-reported outcome measures are? Yeah, okay, sure, Jade. So PROMs are questionnaires that patients complete themselves, and this lets them report the status of their own health. So these are not just any questionnaires, so somebody hasn't just written down a selection of questions. Mm-hmm. PROMs have gone through very rigorous psychometric testing with lots of patients, and this makes sure that they're reliable and they're valid and they're responsive and sensitive the needs of patients. They're very important tools and they're increasingly used throughout the NHS. So recently there was the NHS Next Stage Review and this highlighted that it's really important for all NHS services to include PROMs in the service evaluation and also when they're making treatment decision making. Particularly in relation to the NHS burn service, the British Burns Association has highlighted that we need to develop more PROMs which are specific to patients who've had burn injuries that can be used in the NHS burn service in order to better identify burn patients' needs and also track their therapeutic progress. So developing new problems for the NHS burn service has been a priority. Great, thanks Ella. So yeah, clearly there is a need for these problems to be used in the NHS burn service. So Catherine, can you tell us a little bit more about the care burn scales? Yeah, sure. Well, we've been really fortunate, um, and since Restore first got in contact with us to start this project, we've also received funding uh, from the Scar Free Foundation Children's Boons Research Centre, from Dan's Fund for Boons, which is also a, a boons charity, and from UE for this project. And with all of this funding, we've been able to develop a set of four PROMs to assess quality of life for children, and that's for aged uh, 0 to 8, which is a parent-reported scale, Mm -hmm. for young people, which is aged 8 to 17, and also for adults, which is aged 18 and over with a boon, and also a prom to identify the needs of parents that are supporting child with a boon. Excellent. So you've um, covered everyone there. What types of things do your proms measure? Well, each age-appropriate prom covers key areas of health that patients themselves have told us can be affected after a burn. Mm -hmm. So this includes things like scar dissatisfaction, for instance, how bothered someone is about their burn scars, scar discomfort, how painful or itchy or tight their burn is, discomfort with treatment, for example, bandage changes, washing, dressings, um, psychological well-being, so things like anxiety, low mood, 
social well-being, so things like difficulties in social situations because of their burn scars, and also physical well-being, so helping cope with the physical activities they're doing. Mm-hmm. And there are also subscales that are specific to particular age groups. So, for example, in the child version, which is parent-reported, it also includes the impact of a burn on a child's nursery or school life. The young person scale includes things like romantic relationships in college and school life. And the adult scale looks at the impact of trying to return to work following a burn injury. The parent coping problem measures how the burn injury might have affected the relationships between parents and whether the parents have appropriate social support. And the patient problems are all in the final validation stage at the moment. So they're being currently tested and validated against current problems which are already used within burn care. Mm-hmm. Um, and once this is done, they'll be ready for health professionals to start using within the NHS burn service. Um, and the parent problem is actually in the development stage. So at the moment, we are asking parents within the NHS burn service to complete it, and then we can decide on the final items. And all of the problems are multiple choice, where patients or family members pick which point is most like them. So are they very long for patients to complete? Well, that's actually a really good question. Uh, originally, um, most of the scares were around 150 questions, uh-huh. um, so quite long. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but soon... the. Uh, the patient scales um, will have been shortened and they will should be around 40 items for each scale. So, so pretty short considering Ooh. the range of different aspects of health that are covered in each scale. Okay, that's considerably shorter. So you mentioned that you have an appearance subscale. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the appearance concerns of people who have burn injuries? Yeah, of course. So we know that following a burn injury, people can be left with significant scarring and this can have a significant impact on their appearance. Hmm. So some people might have a very have very visible burns that cover a lot of their body. And in this case, they might encounter unwanted attention, for example, people staring, pointing, or in children especially, they can experience bullying and teasing. And so it's also important to assess avoidance behaviours. Mm-hmm. So for example, people might try and cover up their burns so that other people don't see them. This might be with things like makeup or clothes. So if somebody's got a burn injury in their arm, they might cover the scarring by always wearing long sleeves. But there's also things like avoiding certain situations. For instance, maybe not going swimming or not playing a sport where you have to wear shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah, and I think I think the reason that avoidance behaviours can be problematic is because although often people find that avoiding situations or covering themselves up can actually help them in the short term, so they might make themselves feel a little bit better about their appearance in the short term, actually we know that in the long term by avoiding places or always covering up your scarring, that can actually increase anxiety mm-hmm. in the long term where people fear going to these certain public places or fear ever showing their scarring. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an important area for us to be able to measure and for health professionals to be able to capture to help patients in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I think it can stop people from doing things that they want to be doing as well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And so during adolescence, as we probably know, we generally become more invested in our appearance. So this is a time when, say, a child who might not have been particularly bothered about their burn scars when they were in childhood Mm. um, may suddenly become more conscious about their altered appearance. And this could lead to things like appearance dissatisfaction and poor body image. So this shows why it's so important to assess people as they go through different life stages and keep seeing what their needs are and if anything's changed. Mm, yeah, and then we get to sort of adulthood, um, and having a boon scarring can actually make it more difficult to for some adults to form intimate relationships with a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, they might be conscious about certain aspects of their body or their partner touching their boon scars. 
Yeah, so to look at these things, we also ask people about the specific appearance of the burn. So, for example, their scars might be thick or lumpy, and, and also there could be a difference in the colour of the skin following the burn that might bother them. But actually, it's really important to remember that the size of the burn doesn't necessarily relate to how dissatisfied somebody is with its appearance. So we know that people may have a very small burn, which could be in somewhere we consider to be quite hidden, mm-hmm. and they can be very dissatisfied and it can cause them a lot of problems, and they can be very anxious about it. Whereas there's other people who have burns that can cover a significant amount of their body and they cope very well with it and very comfortable with their appearance. So Mm -hmm. it's important to remember that. Definitely. So I think one last thing to talk about in relation to why we're looking at appearance in our scale is that this might not be something that many health professionals are aware of or if they are aware of appearance concerns, they might not be sure of how to broach the subject with their patients because it's obviously quite a sensitive issue. So it's really helpful to have a self-report measure which identifies these kind of appearance concerns and that can be directly reported by the patient themselves. And burns is a very complicated condition and all these different aspects that we're measuring. So, for example, appearance can lead to things like avoidance behaviours and also depression, anxiety, and it's all related to quality of life. Great, thanks Ella. So yeah, appearance is a really important aspect. So how would um, patients or parents complete the care burn scales? Are they on paper or are they online? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're both paper and online options available. It just depends on how the health professional wants to use the prom. Mm. We hope that when the care burn scales are actually used in the future, uh, they'll be used regularly when a patient or parent is coming into the burn service for treatment. Um, And they can either complete it on a paper copy in the clinic or on their phones or on their iPad, either in the clinic or at home using a web link that takes them to an online version of the PROMS. And so this way, patients or parents' needs can be actually regularly checked without them even having to come into hospital. And this actually relates to a new study that we're about to start in a couple of months. And we're actually about to start a study to actually test the care boon scales using an online platform in two NHS boon units in Bristol. And we really wanted to identify whether patients are happy to complete these PROMS online using their phone or on an iPad and this will be actually be the first research study in the UK to explore online problems in the NHS Boone service so we're really excited to start the study and then if the results are positive and it looks like using an online method actually works to collect these problems we're going to plan to conduct a much larger scale study to roll out the care boon scales using this online platform to a greater number of NHS boon services so yeah it's very it exciting very exciting <laughs> isn't it yeah definitely that sounds like some really interesting research it'd be great to have you back on the podcast so our listeners can kind of get an update on what it is you found yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'd love to be back. Yeah, that'd yeah. be brilliant. So is there anything that is particularly unique about your problems compared to others? Yeah, so there are other problems that are available in burn care used to assess patients, but a lot of them are actually designed outside of the UK, and also a lot of them don't cover the breadth of issues that are experienced by patients, so they might have to complete a number of measures, whereas obviously ours includes all the aspects of having a burn, so they will only need to include one. But another really important thing is that our measures have been developed in collaboration with patients themselves. So the care burn scales can involve patients and family members throughout the whole process. So we started off the project with interviewing patients and family members about the key issues of living with a burn injury. And this helped us to create a kind of draft using the interview data. Um, And then patients, family members and health professionals all reviewed the problems and provided their feedback. And this allowed us to create our draft measure. And then last year, 
we conducted a really large NHS study, which um, included 11 NHS burn units across the UK, and we recruited over 750 patients and family members, so obviously a really massive mm. project. Um, and we analysed this data and used it to create our final shortened PROMs. So I think we've just worked so closely with patients and family members, we've been able to ensure that their experiences are captured in our PROMs. And the feedback we've had from patients and family members has been overwhelmingly positive, and it's echoed the importance of having PROMs available mm. for this group, and the importance of making sure that they're involved and collaborating with us when we're designing things like this for the NHS. Mm, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And as Ella's previously said, our PROMs cover um, a wide range of aspects of quality of life that is affected after a boon. But I think what's also unique about our scales is that we also capture the positive experiences that people can experience after having a boon injury. Mm. And although we know that a boon injury can have a really significant effect on a person's life, we also know that nearly every patient that we spoke to in the interviews said that further down the line, Uh, they were able to look back and identify positive experiences that they had experienced after living with a boon injury. Mm. And they often said that they felt a stronger, having sort of got through it, confident, better at talking to other people, and also less judgmental of um, other people that look different. So we really felt it was really important to be able to include the positive aspects of living with a boon injury, as well as the more negative aspects. And also, we work very closely with the British Boons Association and the NHS Boon Service throughout the development of all of our scales. Um, and once the PROMs have been finalised, the NHS Boon Service has said that they'd like the care boon scales to become core outcome measures for all NHS boon services to use. So we're obviously really excited about the potential impact that the care boon scales could have in terms of identifying health needs and outcomes um, within the NHS Boon Service. Firstly, wow, that's amazing. Over 750 patients. That's brilliant. And obviously this can have a major impact on the NHS Burn Service. So how might patients benefit from using your PROMS? Well, for a patient that actually uses the PROMS themselves, it could be quite empowering for patients to be able to report their own needs and have their own say about their own health care and treatment. Mm. Um, and for health professionals, being able to identify patients' needs much more specifically, they'll be able to provide much more individualised support to that patient. Also, um, asking patients to complete the problems at regular intervals throughout their treatment, this can provide health professionals with information about how that patient is actually getting on with their treatment such as things like the psychosexual aspects of the boon, such as body image, scar dissatisfaction, trauma, anxiety, depression. Um, so health professionals will be able to identify whether patients have any additional needs throughout the treatment process, and then they can provide more individualised support to that patient. And these are the, some of the issues that Jen will be talking about later on. That's great, and we'll look forward to listening to Jen talk to Nadia later on in the episode. So is there any way that people can find out more information about your PROMS? Yeah, there is actually. So we've been developing a website for our PROMS, Mm -hmm. um, which everyone can go and have a look at. We've got some content on there now. Um, And that is careburnscales.org.uk. So you should go and have a look. Definitely. Um, And thank you very much for joining us. It's great to hear from you both, Catherine and Ella. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was a great time. Great stuff. Really cool to hear that the NHS Burn Service will be using their questionnaire as a standard for anyone in the UK affected by a burn injury. 
Yeah, and it's really great that they're not only doing it on paper, but thinking about ways to do it. It's kind of like online. Everyone has a phone nowadays. Yeah, it just makes it so much more accessible, doesn't it? Definitely. Do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so up next we have clinical psychologist and PhD researcher Dr Jennifer Heath. Jen is currently in her second year of her PhD looking at peer support for parents of children with a burn injury and she's currently the chair of the British Burns Association Psychosocial Special Interest Group. Also, fun fact about Jen, Jen used to snowboard for the GB Snowboard Cross Team. Okay, so hi Jen, thanks for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. So I know you spent some time working as a clinical psychologist at an adult burns unit up in Sheffield. So tell me, what do the clinical psychologists do within a burns unit? Well, a burn injury can be emotionally as well as physically traumatic for patients. So a person might suffer psychological distress after an injury, but this can often improve with time and support from the medical team and also support from their family and friends. But sometimes professional psychological help is needed to cope with the aftermath of the burn injury and psychologists can offer support and psychological therapy for the inpatients and the outpatients in the burns units. Okay, great. So is that standard care? Do all burn units in the UK have a clinical psychologist? It's certainly recommended that patients have access to a professional who's able to provide psychosocial support. Within burn services, patients could have access to this through a clinical psychologist, a counsellor, a psychotherapist or another appropriately qualified professional. If the service doesn't have such a professional dedicated to their team, then patients wanting to access this support could be referred to a person able to provide it, and that could be done through their GP. Uh-huh, got it. So can you tell me a bit more about what a clinical psychologist actually does to help patients? So what kind of psychological therapy or support do you give them? Well, it depends on the needs of the individual patient, but a common intervention is cognitive behavioural therapy, that's also known as CBT. So when a person is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy, or a technique called eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing could be considered. These techniques help people to reduce vivid or unwanted repeated recollections of the traumatic events. Personally though, I like to work with patients using CBT or compassion-focused therapy, um, but it completely depends on their Mm -hmm. needs. Okay. So, one more question in relation to your experience as a clinical psychologist. How important or how how much does it come up to work with a patient in regards to their appearance following a burn injury? This is very individual, but a traumatic change to somebody's appearance can be very difficult to accept or come to terms with. Whilst the reconstructive surgery on offer through burn services can reduce the visibility of scarring, it can't um, remove it completely and so the patient is always going to be bearing a reminder of what happened to them and what they've been through. So part of the role of a psychologist um, or another psychosocial professional in the team is helping patients to come to terms with this. It might also be important for psychologists to help patients to think about any motivations or expectations they've got regarding um, reconstructive surgery and the potential impact that further surgery might have on them and this just allows us to ensure that their expectations regarding the outcome of any cosmetic procedure are realistic. Mm-hmm. Okay so it's about acceptance and expectations. Definitely. Okay great. Okay so let's transition because I know that you left your role as a clinical psychologist within a burns unit because you saw some uh, really major gaps within the support that the service were able to offer which affected patient outcomes. So can you tell me about, about this and what's brought you to Carl? Definitely. So I found, well, I found and also in the literature, it's clear that parents are also suffering psychologically and emotionally when their child is injured. 
And so the National Burn Care Standards recommend that in addition to the support provided by burn services themselves, support groups should also be available that enable um, patients, their families and carers to access peer support. But in reality, interventions to support family members are scarce and few of the UK burn services provide self-help or support groups to patients and families. So this lack of burn-specific peer support in the UK appears to be due to difficulties with recruitment and maintaining interest and enthusiasm. But before attempting to find a solution to this problem that we're faced with of providing support to parents, we need a clearer understanding of their experiences and their needs. So without asking parents what they want in terms of support, it's hard to develop a support intervention that is going to adequately meet their needs. Okay, so you've come to CAR, you've started your PhD. Tell me what, how you're going about tackling this. So I've completed one study so far, um, and for that I've interviewed 13 parents about their access to support when their child was in hospital, their experience of this, and their um, opinions regarding peer support specifically. And after the analysis, three themes have emerged from the discussions with parents about the injury and their treatment experience. And two themes have emerged specifically from discussions about support that they had access to. Okay, so yeah, tell me more about that. What have you found? What are the themes? So um, the first three themes that I'll talk about about their experiences. The first one was to do with loss. So parents talked about the devastating impact that the burn injury had had on themselves and also on their child. This was discussed in relation to an initial fear that they might lose their child because of the injury itself, but also because they worried that the child might be taken away by social services oh, yeah, uh, because uh -huh. they'd let this happen to them. It was also discussed in relation to their child's changed appearance and the impact that the scarring would have on their child's future. Um, parents discussed their desire to repair the damage done and their action that they were taking to reduce the extent of the damage. Mm -hmm. The next one was change. The child's injury and the treatment required imposed unavoidable changes on parents and the family and the child themselves undergoing mm -hmm. those treatments. Um, the parents and the child have to live with the constant reminder of the scarring and the impact of the event on their perceptions of themselves and the parental role and how this impacted on their interactions with others. And this could have been like medical services, schools, friends, their partners and the general public. Um, parents sometimes worried that their child's scarring would make others perceive them as bad parents. Mm -hmm. And there was also a concern that whilst the injured child was unwell, that their siblings had been neglected by the parents. The other theme was isolation. So this was isolation in both an emotional and a physical sense. And it emerged as a really significant challenge that parents faced when their child was newly injured and beyond that. The parents described the hospital as being like a cocoon or a bubble and that they were cut off from the outside world, often alone with their injured child. And these are usually in single rooms due to the infection protocols that you have in the hospitals. Right. So although parents might be surrounded by a multidisciplinary team um, helping their child and supporting them um, and other family members and friends, they could still feel very much alone and as though they were the only one who'd ever been through this or ever felt this way. And just to quote one parent, um, they said, you feel like you're the only person it has ever happened to, like you're completely by yourself. Oh, that's really sad. So is the purpose of the parent support as well, like a transition from to get people from hospital and like to readjust to you know their lives at home? And So I'm planning a second study at the moment, which is going to validate some of these themes. Right. And 
kind of help us direct the focus of our support. So I'll talk about the um, themes relating to support specifically mm -hmm. next, but I don't want to base all my decisions on support on those 13 interviews. I want right. to survey some more people. Okay, so you've told me about three themes about the injury and treatment experiences. Did you find anything else in that study, in that first study? So we've got two more themes, um, which are specifically about support. One's about professionally-led support, and the other's about peer support. So parents were asked specifically about their access to professionally-led support. And most parents had been offered support by a professional, such as a clinical psychologist, and the majority of those that accessed it found it helpful, mm -hmm. but there were some barriers to accessing that support. Okay, so what kind of barriers? So issues such as the time it takes to look after a child with a burn injury, that could be due to dressing changes, scar management, um, there's massaging, creaming, um, trips to multiple hospital appointments, the financial impact that parents missing work has on the family and the cost of all these multiple visits to hospital. Mm -hmm. Also the distance they live from the specialist services. Um, factors such as guilt and shame and a reluctance to want to kind of recall and talk about the events um, can also be a barrier. Recalling those events and the associated feelings can just be too painful. Um, parents can be blinkered in terms of being like focused on just getting their child well again and all of this can lead to parents focusing on the child at the expense of their own needs. So my second theme was about peer support and parents were asked specifically for their opinions regarding peer support. Some parents described to me how they thought peers could be a valuable source of emotional and practical support for them and those who had accessed it, which is often informally in the hospital while their child was there, found it helpful. Um, and I'm wondering whether access to this kind of support can help us overcome some of the barriers to accessing professionally led support. Mm -hmm. um, some parents had already turned to the internet as a medium for sharing or gleaning the peer experiences of others but the provision of appropriate resources and online support was noticeably lacking for them. Okay, so tell me what you're, what you're doing next, what you, how are you going to use these findings to make a difference to parents with a child with a burn injury? So we know from previous research into peer support that, can, that peers can provide knowledge and reassurance, coping strategies, inspiration, encouragement and a sense of hope, while also decreasing that sense of isolation that I described earlier. So I wonder whether peer support, specifically online support, can help parents to overcome some of the practical, real-world challenges, psychological challenges that can act as barriers to them accessing adequate support. So I believe that peer support could be valuable to parents and an online support resource could be beneficial. I'm currently recruiting parents to answer an online survey about their experiences of parenting a child following a burn injury, their opinions on peer support and their opinions on online support more specifically and how an online peer support intervention might be helpful to them and I'm hoping to base the development of my intervention on those findings. Okay great so yeah you can get parents to really inform what the support is going to look like um, mm -hmm. in the end. Definitely well, there's no point developing something that isn't based on what they've told me that their needs are. Yeah of course so we can we can put a link to that survey um, in our show notes. Brilliant, so thank you. People can find that there. Okay, Jen, thank you so much for talking to me. It's great, really interesting to hear about your work. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Yeah, and if you're interested in this topic, remember to go back and listen to Professor Diana Harcourt's 
Appearance Matters 7 keynote on visible difference in low-income countries, where she focuses a lot on acid burns. And that reminds me, Nadia, the date for Appearance Matters 8 has now been set for next year, from the 12th to the 14th of June in Bath. Okay, so a big thank you to Katya and Ella and Jen for all their help with this podcast episode and all the charities that support their important work. Yeah, and if you found this episode interesting, leave us a review on iTunes to tell us, please. And join us next time. We'll be sticking with Visible Difference to talk about the impact of an altered appearance as a result of breast cancer. <laughs>